turn to the book of Luke today and we uh, continue in our Dear Theophilus series, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there are some about every third pew in the racks under the pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily understand and uh, mark up and put to use, put to work, uh, we have plenty. We want you to have God's Word. You don't need any human opinion. What you need is to see what God says specifically for yourself and to be able to understand it, to be able to work through it. God gave us our Bibles. He wrote this for us by the hand of, of men so that we could understand him, not so it can sit on a shelf, not so it can look pretty, have a nice cover and all that kind of stuff. He gave us his word to reveal himself to us. So we want to be in it. Uh, if you need a Bible, there are Bibles available at each of the uh, entrances. If you need one right now during this time this morning, you can just put your hand up and, uh, and Doug will make sure that you've got one. I just volunteered you, Doug. All right, so with that, let's make sure that we are in Luke chapter 19. If you're uh, not real familiar with your Bible yet, the book of Luke is about four-fifths of the way through your Bible. In the New Testament, it's among the, the first four books of the New Testament called the Gospels, and each of them tells the story of Christ's earthly ministry. We're going to be picking up with verse 11. You can follow along as I read with you. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants together and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent delegates after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His, his master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, 
Bring them here and kill them in front of me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we open your word today and we study it together, help us to be able to understand it not with eyes of flesh and with hearts of stone, but according to your spirit, Lord, we ask that you would illuminate this to our minds, that we would be able to understand this supernatural book by supernatural means, that we would see your heart revealed, that our hearts would be stirred, as Wesley said, strangely warmed. Father, it's not enough for us to just hear it. It's not enough for us to just know it. We beg of you, transform us by it. Father, with all of our songs this morning that we offer to you, we do want you to hear them and be pleased. But we want to bring you more than a song. Teach us today to bring you our lives in obedience. Remind us that if we love you, we keep your commands. If we love you, we do what you want done. We occupy until you return. These things we pray in the precious name of your son, Jesus, who gave his life for us. Amen. Well, there are a couple of songs that I wanted us to do today, but I decided instead to read them or read parts of them because they're generally considered Christmas songs. Very often, the songs that we sing at Christmas time are not actually about the nativity, about the advent. They're more about the second advent. In fact, there's one that uh, you've often sung, and it, it's a Charles Wesley hymn. It reads this way, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, Joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. As we hear these words from Wesley, this great hymn is not merely about a baby in a manger, not even the Son of God in a manger, but the Son of God coming to reign, to reign in us, but to reign forever. There's another great hymn by Isaac Watts that we often associate with Christmas, but it really isn't about that. It's about the second coming. It's about the kingdom that will be established when he returns. As you hear these words, you may notice that much of this has nothing to do with the world we live in today. When we speak of peace on earth, we don't see a lot of that, do we? Much of the Old Testament prophecies, when we look at Isaiah especially, we see so many Isaiah prophecies read at Christmas time. 
But Isaiah is talking about the fullness of the kingdom. The first advent, the nativity, is just a foreshadowing. Just the beginning as the kingdom of God comes near. One day he will return. And with that in mind, Watts writes, Joy to the world! The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. It's worth repeating, isn't it? See, the beauty of this is that there is a time coming when all of the earth will receive him as king. Now, some will do that by choice. Some will do that by force. So the good news of the kingdom is only good news for those who are allied with the king. If you're an enemy of the king, then the coming of the kingdom is bad news. For us to have joy, to truly understand what that means, we need to be on the king's side when he returns. And he's given us this time to be able to take hold of that. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. There will be a reversing of the curse that came in Genesis 3. A reinstallation, if you will, of the perfect creation, a new heavens and new earth. And there will be one sovereign. There will be no prince of this world. There will only be one king, one Lord. Zechariah prophesies this, and he prophesies destruction for all those who oppose God's people. There will be one king, one Lord. In the book of Revelation, we see it over and over, played out this entire picture of all that is passing actually passing, being consumed, being burned up, being destroyed. And all those who are outside of the relationship with Jesus Christ, burned up, consumed, destroyed. If you're outside of this relationship, that's not good news. The good news is that, as we saw last week, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The one who will return to be king and judge and to execute that final judgment right now in this moment has left the Spirit to move us and has paid the price for our sin that by simply receiving that gift, which he has fully paid for, we might have life. Life that starts now and lasts forever. So that when he returns, we no longer have to face his wrath and his judgment, but instead we will be with him. We will reign with him. So we can truly say joy to the world. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his love, of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. This will be the reality. It's not yet. Now, in Luke chapter 19, having just come out of the Zacchaeus story, the people around in this massive crowd, that's why little Zac climbed the tree, right? Because he was a wee little man. He had to get over the obstacles to be able to see 
who Jesus was. He wasn't even necessarily seeking salvation or repentance. We're told nothing about the state of his heart. We're told that he came to see who Jesus was. And the kindness of Christ in reaching out to him drew him to repentance. And he repented publicly. He didn't care who was watching. It wasn't for them, but it was before them. And as he repented, and Jesus declared, salvation has come to this house. For by his faith, I'm adding that based on Romans, by his faith, this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. They heard this. They've been anticipating for really now for centuries that the Messiah, when he came, would enter into Jerusalem and would establish this kingdom. That he would overthrow all the enemies of Israel all the enemies of the people of God. And they were largely right. Their timing was off. Their understanding of the people of God was off. But their understanding of the prophecy was not far off. Jesus was coming. Now they're about to enter Jerusalem. You'll remember back in uh, about chapter 9, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And so uh, the rest of this is him moving in that direction. Everything that we've seen since then has been on the way. Not literally in every case because he takes a circuitous route, but his goal, his purpose has been moving toward Jerusalem. And you know what happens in Jerusalem, don't you? Jesus is resolutely, consciously, actively moving toward the cross. We'll get there in time. But right now, he's in Jericho. He's passing through Jericho. And he's about to enter Jerusalem. He's, he's headed there. He's on the way. And as they're hearing him declare this salvation and declare his purpose, which it doesn't appear from what, they're, from what we're reading here, it doesn't appear that they understand yet. But as they hear his purpose to seek and to save the lost, and they hear him declare this salvation, and they know that he's about to enter Jerusalem, they think he's going to take the throne. And the kingdom of God would come immediately Rome would be overthrown, Israel would be glorified, and all's right with the world. It's nice of Luke to actually tell us specifically why this parable is here. Notice in verse 11, <clears throat> while they're listening to this, this statement that Jesus makes, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He's setting them right. Now, i got to tell you, I confess my own shortcomings as a reader of Scripture. Maybe you've fallen into this trap, too. I've seen this story a bunch of times, and I've seen it as a parallel a lot of times to Matthew 25 and the story of the, uh, the parable of the, the talents. And it is. And yet Luke includes it here and specifically tells us that Jesus is telling them this parable as an end times issue. This is an eschatological end times issue that he's dealing with. They think the kingdom is coming now, and he's clarifying for them, no, he's already dealt with this numerous times, but he's telling this parable so that they would understand, no, I'm going to leave and come back. In the meantime, you're going to have work to do. When I come back, that's when the final judgment and the reign will take place. As we look at this, there are some things that you want to see. There are some characters that you want to uh, take a look at. You might jot these down just to, remi to remind yourself and to remember them as we go through. 
You can find them for yourself. You can see them. There's a king, right? Actually, a nobleman. He's, he's born noble, born royal, and he goes away to become the king. Sounds a little like Jesus, doesn't it? He was born a child and yet a king. He was born the son of God, more specifically for them, the son of David. He's in the Davidic line. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant, as God promised David that his offspring would reign on that throne forever. His line would always rule over Israel, and there would be the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, who is the seed of Abraham, who is the seed of David, who is the seed of Joseph and Mary. Now here, we see Jesus born to be the king. But he goes away for a while. So this king, this guy goes off. And we see also the next set of characters, his rebellious subjects. That sounds a lot like us. He's a king. He's the rightful ruler, but he's rejected by his people. Isn't that what John says? He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God. Sometimes when I go from memory, it goes back to the King James. It kind of falls into me. As we look at this idea in the parable that the nobleman, the royal line, goes off to receive his coronation, to receive the right to reign, those who should be bowing to him instead decided to reject him. We don't want you to be our king. Perhaps they thought like we I want to be my own king. I want to run my own life. I want to be on the throne. Most of us don't say that consciously, at least not when we're talking about God, but we say it a lot with our lives. The king, the rebellious subjects, we see the true servants, the one with the ten minas, the one with the five minas, they do the will of the, of the master, those are the true servants. We also see the fake servants, the posers. The one who comes with just the one mina. He's not operating on the basis of the master's agenda. So when the master returns, he gets rebuked. Uh, that might be an understatement. He says, I really didn't trust your character. Therefore, I didn't obey, I didn't operate according to your agenda, I operated according to my agenda, and my agenda was to protect myself. Why would I put out the effort and labor to work for you when, you know, your character is questionable? You seem harsh. You don't seem like the king that I want to serve, therefore, I'm going to do my thing with it. But here's your mina back. I haven't cheated you. That's not the way the king sees it. Those are fake servants. There are some events that we need to notice here. First off, this king, this man born royal, born of noble birth, goes away. That's significant. He goes away, and it's particularly significant in this story because they think he's establishing the kingdom now. Jesus already is in line. It's already his throne, his crown to wear, but it's not his time yet. So he will go away just like we see in the story. When he goes away, something else we need to notice. He assigns work. He assigns work and 
he, we might say, gives gifts, but really what he does is he supplies the resources to do the work. Very often, and we've talked about this recently, we see the gifts that God gives us as ours, but they're not ours. They're resources for his agenda. When we use them for our agenda, that is essentially embezzling from God. That's what happens with this fake servant. I don't really want to do what you want with your stuff. I'm going to protect it as if it's my stuff. Because if I go and invest it now, you're just going to take it from me. If I hold on to it, if I protect it, then maybe you won't actually come back. And I'll get to do my own thing. He assigns work, he gives gifts or provides resources for that work. Then he returns. So we need to see all these different events, these different pieces of the story. The king returns. He comes now to reign, to rule. He was already the authority, but now he comes back as the king. And that changes things a little bit. Lastly, when he returns we see that he settles accounts. He settles accounts. That's a great thing for those who were faithful, and it's a terrible thing for those who were unfaithful. Those that didn't want him face his judgment. It's a pretty harsh ending. It's just one of those endings where it's like, boom, execution, and next story. We move on. Jesus doesn't try to soften it. He doesn't try to, to, to make it feel better, to make it politically correct. We do that a lot of times with the gospel. Jesus loves everybody. God, God loves everybody. So you just do whatever you want. It's okay. There's no sin. There are no rules. But that's not true. So when we preach that message, we are lying to people. And we are setting them up to be those at the end of this parable who face the king having not been told that he's coming to kill them. He's offering mercy now. If you don't take the offer now, at that point it's too late and you will be destroyed. If you know that that's the truth, how dare we not tell the truth? How dare we not love people enough to hurt their feelings to save their eternal souls? That's the job. I'm getting ahead of myself. So this parable is about the coming of the kingdom. It's not about using your talents. It is. You know, and, and the other story in Matthew, because the unit of money that's described there is the word talent, that, that we kind of hear that as our talents. And it's great. It preaches well to be able to make that switch. Here, God doesn't give us that break. He, he uses this ancient term, mina, which is essentially about a three-month's wages. So you're giving 10 quantities of three months wages for you to put to work and as you take this and you do what you're supposed to do with it it's not the effectiveness of the servant it's the faithfulness of the servant notice he praises both the one who brings back tenfold and the one who brings back fivefold because they were both faithful it wasn't about how skilled they were it was about how diligent they were in obedience the coming of the king was good news and bad news. It was bad news for the unfaithful. It was good news for the faithful. Now, he doesn't tell us in this parable what the work was that was assigned to them. For us, however, we need to get that figured out. 
What is it that he wants us to do? How can I serve? What does it mean to be among those who reject him? Because I would never say, I don't want Jesus for my king. Nobody says that. Well, that's not true anymore, but you get the idea. Most of the people that you know would call themselves Christians. How many folks do you know in our community who say, oh, I don't believe in God at all? There are some. But most of the people in your circle of influence probably would say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. They might even say, I believe in Jesus. That's not really the question, though, is it? The question is, are you aligned with his priorities? Do you belong to him? Because the devil believes in God. The devil believes in Jesus. It's not helping him a whole lot. Belief is not enough. So we need to take a look at what this rejection is. The point of the parable is to say that the kingdom was not what they expected. They were expecting something now. They were expecting something that they could observe. He's already said this previously. This, it's not coming in the way that you can observe it the way you think. People are not going to look around and say, oh, here it is, there it is. When this happens, when the kingdom is established, when I return, buddy, you're going to know it. It'll be like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other. It'll be like vultures hovering over a dead body. You'll be able to see it. There will never be a doubt. No question at all. It's not what you expected. There's more. We need to take a look at this. So as we work through, the, the, the point of the story is pretty clear. All right, it's our core reality. Those who love the Lord are passionate about serving the Lord until he returns. Those who love the Lord are passionate about serving the Lord until he returns. We see this in the, in the, uh, the story drawn out pretty clearly. You have unfaithful servants, you have faithful servants. You have those who reject, it doesn't end well. King goes away, he comes back, there's a job. It all comes together in this idea that those who love the Lord are passionate about serving the Lord until he comes. So let's talk about what that looks like. Now you'll have some blanks to fill in. First, if we love him, his reality will be our focus. If we love him, his reality will be our focus. He's telling this parable because they're stuck in the here and now. They want to see the glory of the kingdom established in a physical throne to protect what they expect, not what God expects. Jesus is saying, you're not seeing it right. What you expect doesn't line up with reality. So he's helping them, if you will, manage their expectations. Stop looking for this. Start looking for that. We, if we love him, will begin to fix our eyes on him. If we believe that the Bible is true, if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and he does what he says he does, and that he will return as he says he will return, then the whole idea of getting caught up in this life doesn't even make any sense anymore. Now, we still struggle with that sometimes because we live in this life. We see the things around us. We have our five senses that are constantly bombarding us with stimuli. And we don't see on the other side of the curtain, but we know who is there. And we know that that is the greater reality. So if we love him, 
then we won't fixate on life here and now. That's what they were doing. They wanted the kingdom now. Not because they wanted God as much as they wanted no more Romans. They wanted their, their version of the Boston Tea Party. We're not having it anymore. And he's here. Finally, Messiah's here. Let's get to Jerusalem. Let's get it done. He's already said, look, the Son of Man has to be rejected by this generation first, then come back. So he gives this parable describing it. If we love him, his reality will be our focus. Next we see, if we love him, his purpose will be our passion. If we love him, his purpose will be our passion. We'll see things from his perspective. We'll be passionate about the things he's passionate about. That's been the shaping of his disciples as they've gone along. He's been rearranging their priorities. As we've gone through the last several chapters, from 14 specifically, but even back to chapter 12, up until now, Jesus has been pointing out to them, here's God's values, vision, agenda. Here's yours. You need to get aligned here. You need to get away from your religious ritual. Not that the ritual is bad, but you've lost sight of compassion. You need to get the values of God mixed in. You need to stop focusing on your greed, taking care of your needs, and start thinking about the kingdom, the eternal agenda. You need to stop thinking about what is socially acceptable and start thinking about what is morally required. Start thinking about how you're going to have a relationship with the king while he is still offering mercy because the time will come when he will not. How are you going to convince the people that you love to take advantage of that mercy before it's too late? If we love him, his purpose will be our passion. And just as we come into this parable, we see in verse 10 that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. His point has been building to that. That's really the theme of all of the book of Luke. This is the foundation for our faith. Jesus didn't have to come to, to save us. He already could come to judge us. He has that right. He chose in his mercy, in God's sovereign grace, to come to us, to give us this hope of salvation. He did all the work. Not only did he do all the work, he's the one that moves your heart to be able to receive him. Salvation comes with repentance, and repentance is granted by God. He moves in us to be able to. He takes out our heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. Until he does that, we're stuck. Our default is death and condemnation. But he came to seek and to save those who could not save themselves and were not seeking him. Before I get too carried away on that very exciting point, I want to move forward. If we love him, his purpose will be our passion. We'll see things from his perspective. We'll be passionate about the things he's passionate about. If Jesus is passionate about saving the lost, then those who love him will be passionate about saving the lost. The idea of being nervous about sharing our faith 
Makes sense. We live in a world where people are hostile to it, and we are actually preaching a really offensive thing to those who have hardened hearts. It's the only truth that matters. It's the only hope of life, and yet it's offensive because what we're saying is, you are a wretched loser. You can see where that might be offensive. But until we're offended by that, until I come to the place where I recognize that I am a wretched loser, I cannot change. I cannot repent. So it's offensive. But if that's why Jesus came, then how can we not be passionate about it? Is it scary sometimes? Well, yeah. Not as scary as judgment, but it's pretty scary. But if we really believe it, If we're on board with him, what else even makes sense? If we love him, we'll be passionate about the things he's passionate about. His purpose will be our passion. Next, if we love him, his work will be our joy. His work will be our joy. It only follows that that would be true if his purpose is our passion. When our values align with God's values, when we see things through the eyes of Christ, we no longer look at people the way we used to look at people, then it begins to change our values. And his work becomes our joy. We'll be motivated to obey him. John 14, 15 says that if you love me, as Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. He goes on in that chapter to say, those who don't love me don't obey my commandments. It's pretty simple math. Love me, obey. Don't love me, don't obey. Conversely, if you don't obey, do you love him? That's not rhetorical. If you you don't obey, do you love him? Of course not. I can't tell my mom and dad, I really love you. I'm just not going to do anything you say. Sorry, I'm not doing the dishes. Nope, you take care of me. You give me everything. I'm just going to sit here and play my video games and get on with my life. You owe me. That's not love. That's not gratitude. But isn't that exactly what we do with God who gives us our very breath? Every time we say, I am too busy. I am too busy to spend time with God's people. I've got too much on my agenda to serve others. I've got too much television to watch to read the scriptures I can't listen to another sermon. That's just boring. Why would I do that? I have to tell you, if the scriptures and sermons are boring to you, you might want to check what you value. You might want to check what you treasure. Maybe, just maybe, it's not the preacher. Maybe it's your heart. Maybe it's not that God's word is dry and hard to understand. Maybe it's that your heart is hard and you are not quick to listen. These are hard things for us to wrestle with, but it's necessary. If we love him, his work will be our joy. Remember that those who love the Lord are passionate about serving the Lord until he returns. Therefore, if we love him, his reality will be our focus, his purpose will be our passion, his work will be our joy. Notice this, if we love him, his pleasure will be our reward. If we love him, 
His pleasure will be our reward. Now, notice that God does reward. Jesus is very clear about this. There is a reward for the faithful servants. Now, the reward is that they're being entrusted with more. And as you know, with more responsibility comes more glory, right? The president gets a whole lot more press than the mayor of Three Oaks. It's just how it works. That's always going to be the case. God rewards the servants at his return, at the king's return, with greater responsibility. They're entrusted with more. We will reign with him. How that looks, I don't know. We're not there yet. We get a picture in Revelation that gives us some things. We get a picture in the Old Testament prophets that give us some things. We get a picture in Paul's letters. We get a picture from what Jesus tells us. But there is a, a very real and literal sense in which we will actually be a part of his eternal reign and rule when we're on his side. But more than that, Our greatest reward when we love him is knowing that we put a smile on his face. Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, describes part of our purpose that way, that we were made for his, for his pleasure, right? We were planned for his pleasure. We were created to bring glory to God. And he describes it as making God smile. That's our job. What greater reward can there be than to make God smile. Some of you have played sports. Raise your hand if you played sports in your life at some point. Organized sports, right? Did you ever have a coach that you really liked? Did you ever have something you really didn't like? <laughs> you notice that you played differently for the coaches that you really didn't like than you did for the coaches that you did like? It really doesn't matter whether you love the sport or not. There were times when you had that coach that built value into your life, that invested in you, that you felt respected by. You mattered to them. And when they were pleased with your performance, your heart would swell in a unique way. When coach would come and say, that was great. That's exactly what we've been trying to get you to do. And you're just beaming and you feel like you're two inches taller. I always wanted to be two inches taller. It never really worked. And when you have that coach that's just terrible to you, you might still do the same things, but it's not the same joy. Then you're working for your own glory or for the good of the team or your teammates. But when you love that coach, there's no greater reward than putting a smile on his or her face. When we love our parents and our parents then praise us for a job well done, that praise is greater reward than any gift or allowance or trip to the ice cream shop. We do like ice cream, but nothing is greater than making mom smile or making dad smile. That's the great reward. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God because he that comes to God has to believe that he actually exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God is a rewarder of those who are on his side, who are faithful to him who love him and obey him, who do his work until Christ returns. But the greatest reward he can give is his own pleasure. When we please God, 
those who love him find that to be the greatest reward of all. If we love him, his purpose will be our passion, his work will be our joy, his pleasure will be our reward. Notice also, if we love him, his return will be our hope. His return will be our hope. It's a powerful thing to know this. Before we go too much farther into it, I'm going to have you look at some scriptures. We'll start with an Old Testament prophet. I mentioned Zechariah. might not be super familiar. It's closer to Luke than he is to Genesis. So if you get to the middle of your Bible, you find Psalms. You can start moving to the right a little bit. You get past Isaiah and, and get through the bigger prophet, uh, the major prophets, the bigger books there. Then you get into some skinnier ones. Zechariah is toward the end, just shortly before Matthew. We're going to find Zechariah chapter 14. I had to find it for a minute. And after we get done looking at Zechariah, we're going to look at some New Testament passages that are short, but so that we can see how this works. There is a good news, bad news in the coming of the kingdom. Those who are outside of the kingdom will face judgment. Those who are inside, who, are, uh, who belong to him, will then find reward. I should be looking it up while I'm talking to you. But when we're in Christ, Paul makes it very clear in his own life and in his teaching that there's nothing more joyful, nothing more encouraging than to know that the king is coming. This is the joyful news that we have. Without further ado, let's look at Zechariah chapter 14. I tried to stall for you so you can find it. Zechariah is a strange book. There are a lot of prophetic imageries that come in here and uh, many things that are specifically related to Old Testament history, the history of Israel and Judah. But I think you'll get the picture as we read just from the beginning and the end of it. Starting with verse 1. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. That doesn't sound like very good news, does it? He's talking about the time when the Lord returns But prior to the establishment of joy, first comes suffering. Notice he also takes responsibility for it. I will gather, this is verse 2, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. And it flips here. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Guess who the holy ones are? That's not the angels. Now, the angels might be there. That's us. That's the picture that we see in the book of Revelation. Now, I believe, I believe Zechariah would have understood that to mean angels. But I don't think that's the picture that God is painting here. That's interpretive. I want to give you some latitude on that, a little bit of gray. 
that holy ones, when we see that's the New Testament way of referring to, to those who belong to Christ. Paul addresses every letter to the saints, to the holy ones of God. That's us. That's the church. That's what we see when he comes back. He comes back with his people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 6, on that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Feels a little bit like joy to the world, doesn't it? But before we get to joy to the world, we have this destruction, this judgment as the nations prove his righteousness. Jump down to verse 26, 20, just 20. My eyes are not great. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. He's speaking of the corruption of Israel, the desolation. And all of this will come and all of the, the purification will come. And the glory of Israel becomes manifest. This is what they're looking for. What they missed is all the detail that Jesus begins to fill in. And then later in the New Testament, we see more detail filled in. It was there. It was always there. The message has always been Jesus from the beginning to the end. Now, turn, if you would, to Philippians Philippians chapter 3, we're going from an obscure Old Testament book to a more prominent and well-known New Testament book. Past Luke, right about in the middle of your New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I'm saying it and I'm turning right past it. You're going to find Philippians chapter 3. Philippians is a great letter. It's very interesting. Many of you, if you've been here for any length of time, you already know this. This is a letter filled with joy. Paul is writing this joy-filled letter while he's chained to a Roman guard. He's imprisoned. And in the midst of this, he says words like we're about to read. There is a hope that we can cling to. Notice this. Starting with uh, chapter 3. Oh, man. I want to read all of it. But we're going to read 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, that's the glory of that coming day, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with, <clears throat> excuse me, I plead with Yodia. I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. I wanted to include this exhortation that he gives. He's giving us this hope, and he's calling us to follow his example. And right in the middle of this, he throws in this little blurb about, talk to these ladies who can't get along. Get them right. Why? Focus their eyes heavenward. Focus their eyes on the hope of his return. Therefore, we can rejoice always. It's so important. He repeats it. I'll say it again. Rejoice. And then he goes into how to do that. Rejoicing is a choice. We have strife and difficulty between us when we take our eyes off of him, off of the glory of his return, off of the glory of eternity, and start to see just the things around us and those really irritating people, sometimes sitting next to you in the chair here on Sunday morning. Jessica, don't look at Jeff. As we're doing these things, we, we need to keep that hope of his return ever in front of us. We need to be mindful of the reality that he is coming and his return will be our hope, and we long for it. If we love him, his reality will be our focus, his purpose, our passion, his work, our joy, his pleasure, our reward, his return, our hope. And lastly, let's notice this. If we love him, if we love Jesus, if we're on his side, if he is our Lord, our King, his gospel will be our message. His gospel will be our message. Turn to the left a little bit. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, if you've been at real life very long, your Bible may automatically fall open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We spend a fair amount of time there. If we love Jesus, it changes the way we think. We focus on his reality, not our understanding. We begin to get passionate about the things that he's passionate about. Therefore, obedience makes sense to us because we value what he values, we do what he wants done. And we're so excited to please him, to make God smile, that that is the greatest reward we can have. So we look forward to his coming. We set our eyes on things above. We can't look at things the same way anymore. Let's read, starting with verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. 
What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience, speaking of the, uh, the others uh, who are building these churches, the other apostles, his comrades in arms. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Notice this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for those who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ that way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice this for just a moment. Before we continue reading, I want you to plug this in. When the nobleman goes away to become king, he leaves work to be done. Jesus has left us for a distant country for the moment. And he has left us work to be done. He has left us the ministry of reconciliation. This is the work that we should joyfully, passionately continue until his return. Because until his return, mercy is offered. Hope is available. Once he returns, the offer is rescinded. That coupon has expired. And it cannot be redeemed. We must take seriously the work of this ministry. There are lots of opportunities for us to serve. Serving within the church, even as greeters at the door. These are important ministries. I don't know that there could be a more important ministry than teaching children the way of God. To be able to teach young minds who are going to be shaped by the world around us, that there is a truth that is greater, that is eternal, that can save them, so that later on, whether they ever respond now or not, the seeds are planted. So when God moves his spirit in them and quickens them to be able to receive it, maybe it's 15 contacts down the road, when God comes to them and says, now's the time, you've planted this. And they're protected from the enemy's schemes. There is no more important ministry than this. Or to serve as a volunteer at the food pantry on behalf of Christ in the name of his church to be able to go down there and say, hey, I'm going to put in some time. It doesn't seem like gospel ministry, does it? But it is. Everything we do representing him to help the needy, to carry forth this message that Jesus loves you so much that he actually cares about your needs right now, your needs that are going to pass. Eventually, you'll have no bills to pay. Eventually, you won't need food. Eventually, you won't have to worry about who's in the White House. None of that will matter because the king will return. And he loves you so much now, today, that he wants to meet your temporary needs so that you can find in him the satisfaction of your eternal needs think maybe serving in the food pantry might be an eternal ministry? Serving in a vacation Bible school? To make contact with children and parents to say, hey, guess what? Everything you've heard about Christians, 
all the, the hateful bigotry stereotypes and all this other junk. Take a look around. That's not who we are. We reflect the reality of Christ in these relationships. And if you take every relationship seriously, the work of God until Christ returns, then reflecting that reality is a powerful work. But we can't do it when we're trying to hide our mina in a cloth. We can't do it when we're just taking care of our own needs and we're grubbing around for earthworms when we're supposed to be soaring with eagles. He's got a bigger thing in store for you. Back to the text. Backing up to verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That person down the road, they're not the loser you used to think they were. They're a precious soul created in the image of God. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, no, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself. He has reconciled us to himself. We've received this gift, and along with this gift, we've received a ministry. He has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's your job until he comes back. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Pause for a moment. An ambassador is a citizen of one kingdom dwelling in another kingdom to represent the kingdom to which they belong. They don't belong to the kingdom where they live. They represent another kingdom there. That's where they belong. You and I belong to the kingdom of God in Christ if we are in Christ but we represent him here as ambassadors. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Amen and amen. If we love him, his gospel will be our message. We spoke earlier of our baptism service. It's going to be July 28th. At Warren Dunes, as, as normal, it'll be 6 o'clock in the evening is our regular time. And the purpose of this baptism is to declare to everyone that I am all in with Jesus. I died to myself, represented by going into the water, and I'm raised to a new life in him. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the purpose. It's not... It's just Lake Michigan, guys. It's not washing any sins off of anybody. Only God does that. 
in the person of Jesus Christ. But understand that right now is the time. If you're not in that relationship, if you haven't surrendered everything, if you haven't died to yourself to be his, do not wait because that time might pass and you may not have that opportunity. For most of us in this room, you're here because you're part of a family, because you've already joined by receiving Christ. And if you have, if you have been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ, then understand the urgency of doing his work until he returns. Because just as receiving the gospel has a timeline, sharing the gospel with those who need it has the same timeline. You don't know that this won't be the last opportunity you have. Now in God's sovereignty, he works and we are his co-workers, as Paul says. But he works, so we trust him to do the work. But if we're on his side, then we faithfully, passionately get about serving the Lord until he returns. Notice in the parable, and it's made very clear by the parallel in Matthew, the one who didn't obey called himself a servant. He was on the roll. Maybe that's sitting in a chair here at church in our setting. But he didn't do what he was called to do. What he had was taken away from him. He's reckoned with the unbelievers. Rather than being rewarded, he faces the judgment. You can be in church all day long. You can spend your lifetime in church and not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Today is the day. God's favor is extended. Not because you earned it. We never could. So don't wait to clean yourself up. And Christian, don't wait to share the gospel to the person who looks to you like they might be ready to receive it. Don't wait until they clean themselves up or you're just undoing the very gospel you're trying to preach. It's not about how it looks. It's only about his undeserved mercy. And if we're on his side, if we love the Lord, then we will be passionate about serving the Lord until he returns. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak better than I do in the hearts of your people. Lord, you have, you have given us your word and you have left us your spirit until his return so that we might be able to respond to that which we would not in our own flesh be able to respond to. I pray now, Lord, that all else would fall away, that your voice would be all we hear. Lord, help our hearts to long for your return. Help us to focus our eyes on what is real rather than what, on, on what seems real. To recognize that we are citizens of another land and we eagerly await a Savior from there, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray, offering all that we have. Amen.